Out of Oklahoma City, you're listening to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where movies are more than just 90 minutes in a bucket of popcorn. The Good Trash Genre Cast is a member of the Good Trash Media family. For more information, go to goodtrashmedia.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where people gather around a table, uh, more so just around furniture, where there is... I'm kind of lounging. Th- yeah, th- yes, there is definitely a lounging character. He's in the lion. Dalton's pose. feet are getting involved, it looks like. Yeah, I'm getting involved with Dalton's feet. Hmm. Kind of into that. Kay Tarantino. But, uh, or Hitchcock, or Louis Bunuel. The top of my big toe is a little hairy. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're here to talk about the films that you'll never discuss the course of a film studies class. <laughs> and this week's film is a J-Lo extravaganza, uh, The <laughs> Cell from 2000. Wait, no, yeah, I watched Geely. No, wrong movie. Wrong. Wrong movie. Also never going to It was also about. torturous. Ooh, hot take. Geely's bad. <laughs> okay. Woo. But we're going to talk about this, but we have to identify the disembodied voices speaking directly to your brain. Uh, regularly occurring co-host and identify yourself directly across from me. I am Arthur Gordon, and you know, I know another little boy who has a horse. His name's Dalton. <laughs> the boy, not the horse. <laughs> very true, very true. Uh, to my left, sir, who are you? My name is Dalton Stewart, and me God, boy. Boy, <laughs> me God. Uh, my name is... <laughs> Oh man, what is what a what a what a wacky movie! Yeah, my name is Dustin Sells, and although I found this movie visually arresting, I found the dialogue interesting enough to recall. And uh, yeah, no, totally fair. I, I, I had forgotten about the one I actually said <laughs> until I, I went and looked it up. Thanks, IMDb. Uh, yeah. So we're going to talk about the cell here just a little bit for you all, but we want to warn you: this is not a review show; it is an analysis show, and that means we will be spoiling the film. So you're going to find out who done it or who where you know the MacGuffin is lost. Hidden and those sort of things. and uh, But we will wait a moment before we do that to you. What we'll do instead is we'll have a synopsis from a voice. A voice that can arm wrestle to decide what voice will be the voice today. I don't know. I, I did it last week. Okay. Yeah, Ar- Arthur can take the reins. <laughs> it shall indeed then be. Mama made me match my m Sweet Lord in heaven. Got that Theater background, baby. For the purposes of this episode, are we calling him Tarsum or Tarsum Singh? Uh, I, I think we're going to go with Tarsum Singh because that's how he credits himself now. He was Tarsum Singh when he made this. Then he did a couple movies as Tarsum. And I believe uh, now that he's doing a lot of TV, he's uh, crediting himself as Tarsum Singh again. Okay. Mr. Singh. Uh, anyway, if we... you're nasty. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so what we'll do then, we'll have a synopsis, uh, it looks like from the voice of the cinema, back again from the dead. And then from there, we will move into our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which will be spoiler free for the most part. After that, we will play a game related to this film and other films of its ilk. And therefore, that might involve minor spoilerage of that film and then those other films that belong in the orbit of The Cell. After After that, we get down to business, and that business will be, as always, analysis, and no analysis will be complete without dealing with the entirety of said narrative, and thus, and therefore, spoilers, ahoy, dear listener, you have been warned. So, without any further ado, Mr. Arthur Gordon, voice of the cinema, let's hear that synopsis. An FBI agent persuades a social worker who is adept with a new experimental technology to enter the mind of a comatose serial killer in order to learn where he is hidden. His latest kidnap victim. I mean, we've all been there before. I just Daily. think it sounds like the worst ride at Disney. <laughs> <laughs> just the... next to Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> like right just, next. No. no, that sounds like an amazing ride. Zelda ride would be <laughs> so good. No. So good. We, why isn't there... I mean, the great R.L. Stein wrote the thesis on it, but why is there not... A horror-themed amusement park. Amusement park. Yeah, it'd be great because amusement be parks always do a lot of business in Halloween. Yeah. So why not just uh, make it every day Halloween? Just, like, go out there all the time. I, I, yeah. Yeah, I watch scary movies the, in the uh, months in October. Yeah, man. I don't know. I just, oh I man, with great. all those horror kids, it'd have to be a totally indoor amusement park, though. Lots of goth. Yeah. That, 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 that no all that black light. is not going to do well in the sun. <laughs> 
Well, I'm they, speaking as an inside boy, I'd love that park, but I'm there's like, like the a AC. saw themed escape room, and there's yeah. like the cell ride, Hellraiser, Event Horizon. Yeah, you yeah. could fit, fit a lot of stuff inside. Yeah, I, I would be all in for that. It's about getting the rights, probably. So it either have to be like the low rent knockoff kind of thing, or <laughs> the expensive. The rights does present a problem. So yeah, that that would be a thing. But I would say, to your point, must be indoors because much like the dog in this film, they never ever <laughs> tan. So uh, there is something going on there, dear listener. So without any further ado, let's hear those thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Uh, I'm gonna have you go first, Dalton, since this is your recommend, and Arthur and I are the uh, cell virgins uh, for this particular film. So uh, go ahead and tell us um, whether or not you like the cell. And why? Well, uh, I so I can't remember if I actually mentioned it on the show already, but so a couple of weeks ago, I happened to catch this on HBO Now, and uh, it's a movie I've been wanting to see for some time. Uh, I liked a couple of other of Tarsum's films, and we'll talk about that later on in the show. Uh, so I've been meaning to get around to this, and uh, I watched a couple of weeks ago, and immediately was just like texted both of you and was like, "We're we're talking about this, Arthur. You can come on if you want. We're doing this. This is the next thing that we're talking about." Uh, I liked it that much. Uh, so I was really excited to get to talk about it for the show. I watched it again uh, just uh, a night or two ago just to re-prepare myself. Uh, and I was not struck by it as much the second time. I will say that. Uh, but I still do like it quite a bit. Uh, I think, yes, um, it is very clearly working from the same playbook as Silence of the Lambs. It is, for all intents and purposes, the same narrative Um a, a, a serial killer has imprisoned a girl and the FBI is racing against the clock to save her. That is kind of the nuts and bolts narrative of that film. Uh, this film takes out uh, getting into that killer's mind by going through another killer and cuts out the middleman. And they go directly into the mind of the killer, which I think is just the coolest idea ever. Um, because there are all kinds of movies about we have to get the bad guy to tell us where where the, the, the loot is hidden, where where the endangered person is hidden. We have to we have to get the killer or the criminal to tell us what what they know well uh this this movie uh was uh, ahead of the game uh that would eventually be be real big thanks to christopher nolan and inception and saying hey let's just go inside somebody's brain and find out what they know that was so good uh it's such a great idea um and i think it does what a lot of people wished uh that film inception had done and really leans into the surrealism of being inside somebody else's brain and uh whoo what a joy. What a joy this film is for all of its beautiful costumes and set design and production elements. Oh, my God. Uh, it's such a beautiful film to look at. Uh, every, every piece of uh, costuming, every stitch of uh, clothing, every bit of furniture, uh, it's all beautiful, and I love it so much. And it's weird and dark and sad and violent and and also very humanistic and and very much about redemption very much about trying to soldier on in a world that will continuously test your ability to believe in other people um so yeah i i liked it quite a bit i think the performances are all good uh, i i i like jlo quite a bit i like vince vaughn quite a bit uh vincent uh d'offerno is obviously the mvp here without a shadow of a doubt but uh, i liked everybody's uh, performances quite well um so yeah that's that's what i have to say about the cell uh it is obviously a flawed movie because you've never i mean don't get me wrong guys when you hear about a film that you only vaguely remember or have never heard of a lot of the time it's not well remembered for good reason last week with devil in a blue dress i think that was an accident that film should be much more remembered and much more highly remembered this film on the other hand i think is about appropriately held i think it should have a little bit more of a cult following but it definitely has a lot of hiccups along the way but i found myself not caring about those hiccups because i was so arrested by the film well, there you go. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, did you like The Cell, and uh, why or why not? Uh, actually, I did. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. I, this is really in my wheelhouse, this kind of serial killer mystery. I, you know, it's definitely playing that, and then adding in the sci-fi horror elements. It's just uh, it really is playing in my wheelhouse, and I enjoyed a lot of things about it. I love the premise here. I love the ideas at play and the base level. I really enjoy uh, Jennifer Lopez. I think she is great here. Uh, surprisingly, I, th I thought she. I think she's the MVP for me. I, I could see that. Yeah, I think D'Onofrio is channeling Buffalo Bill way too hard. In, okay, in the early portions. Now, when they yeah. get to the Dream World, it's, that's it's really a what I was thing. talking about. Yeah, and that for me, that's the biggest mark against this film. I don't like the 
the the the roughly twenty minutes where we're meeting in the, this in character, the real world. Yeah. Where we're meeting this character, and then we've got the FBI chasing him. I think you could cut. I would have preferred to have seen this where you're actually focusing on that little boy, and it is about trying to save his life or something. Yeah, and removing that whole serial killer thing. And I feel like that's. I don't think that's a bad idea. Yeah, I feel like you know we're obviously trying to capitalize. Signs of the Lambs, obviously, but we can't forget Seven as well. Yeah, big time. Absolutely, uh, which is just a couple years you know before this as well. So we're still riding that kind of serial killer thing, and it's interesting. Yeah. Um, but to me, I think that's really the weakest portion of this is the whole FBI part. I don't really care for Vince Vaughn here. Uh, that's, that's it's always remembered. It's I, always weird remembering Vaughn as was, the was not actor. always a comedic actor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, between this and Psycho, it, it was an odd time in his you know career. Um, but I I love the thing Tarsum's doing with the imagery. The imagery is so brilliant, so beautiful. The the sequence when she first goes into uh, Carl, I believe, his uh, mm-hmm. mind and. Uh, we see the thing with the horse, which is fascinating. It's brilliant. Uh, but then we go into this menagerie, and all these like dolls are there. And then there's the bodybuilding monster doll. And that whole sequence is just it's, it's unsettling, uh, but it's so well-constructed. And so all that imagery is it's, it's really cool. And I, I like looking at this visually. It's, it's a lot of, I think, moving art in, in, in the work. Um, mm-hmm. So for the most part, uh, yeah, I'm very positive on this film. There's some few things I think you could have cut. Uh, I could have done with a direction. lot more dream time. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know that I, and this is probably just because of the time, I don't know that I love how it plays out. We may talk us about this a little later. Um, insofar as how that kind of third act uh, takes place and okay. other characters get involved in the dream world. Okay. I don't really care for that. I kind of wish it was more of a solo act between... I J-Lo was and I was interested Co. in it, and I think it would have worked better if it had gone farther. I yeah. So yeah. yeah, I'm excited to talk about that later. So Dustin, you you've made some faces uh, throughout talking about this that I'm curious about. What what, do you, what are your thoughts here, my friend? Okay, well, first of all, we're talking about Alejandro Jodorowsky's Silence of the Lambs. So there's an extent to which I am automatically Manically in, on board. Yeah, yeah. just and, you know, I mean, but know. I've seen some faces you've made too. Yeah, because Vince Vaughn sucks. I, I, yeah, you really don't like him. No, huh? he sucks. Okay, uh, and, and I like him. And the, the the plot move in which he becomes heroic is stupid. Wouldn't happen. Don't don't love it. Um, again, we'll talk about this more later. I think I, I don't want to. I think it's it is kind of a an unsurprising but still interesting shift in what, what the plot's doing. It's not that surprising if you're paying attention, uh, but it's surprising enough that I, I don't want to reveal too much right now. I think I want to come back to the the Vaughn character a little later. I okay. don't want to go too much in now, but I want to kind of Same. I think digest some thoughts about him. Exactly. I think there's some some talk to be had about him in analysis. So okay. let's, let's go ahead and play that close to the chest for yeah, right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's more to him. You didn't this. love what his character had going on. No, well, I, I really, you liked aspects of it, I assume. The character it's himself... It's the performance itself. It, it's, really, it's really Vaughn's performance more than anything, and then that one little bit of plotting that we'll address when we get to that. Um, but there are other bits that are interesting in the hands mm. of a competent actor. I think would have been better and uh, not that he's an incompetent actor but his performance is pretty incompetent I would say uh, I, I don't I don't I don't I don't feel that way I, I, I think I could see what about it you don't like though I kind of like that he doesn't I, I, I like that he's a little miscast okay I don't. Uh, <laughs> okay, fair enough. I'm just going to go with no. Fair enough. I don't like uh, Mustache, Mustafferson, um, the uh, other uh, FBI guy. I, I think he's just weird. Which one? Uh, the mustache. His Make- partner, his main partner. His main partner doesn't have a mustache. His main partner is the guy from Dawn of the Dead remake. Not, uh, not Dean Morris. Uh, no, yeah. You're talking about the other guy. Yeah, guy. The, the blonde guy. He doesn't have a mustache. With the, no, with the, no, the other guy. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, no, no, not the guy that made his way into oh. some true crime, uh, or not true crime, like uh, serial uh, police procedural television later. Um, yeah. And also, I feel like he's in, oh gosh, like uh, The Good Wife or something like that, too. But uh, I think that's you're right. But he's also, yeah, with the, he's on the uh, Patricia Arquette show. Yeah, the small fellow. Okay, uh, you're yeah, not talking about no, him. No, I'm talking about the older gent with the mustache. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Yeah, 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 he yeah. sucks. Dean Norris is underused. Oh, um, always. Yeah, always. Dean Norris was underused for decades. Yeah, so that's all We were fault. fools. 
but that's that is what it is. I do like uh, Jennifer Lopez. Uh, she is doing a fantastic job. I am um, sometimes a little quasi unsure about uh, the assumption. This is another sort of plotting thing mm-hmm. where we see that uh, Carl's character, played by D'Onofrio, who I think is pretty solid. Yeah, uh, I, I don't feel like he's doing too hard into the Buffalo Bill. I could see what Arthur is saying in those scenes early on before he is comatose. Yeah, well, I don't care about anything outside the dream world anyway. Yeah, same. I don't don't give a rip about it. So, th- I mean, there is that. But that being said, D'Onofrio is fine. But uh, what's weird to me, iconography-wise, is if the way he sees himself and his evil self is what we see manifest mm-hmm. in his dream world, then the same self being manifest of Jennifer Lopez in her own world, that's a little problematic. And... Uh, you know, I, I'm just... It's its something that troubled me, and I'm ready to talk about okay, it later. Okay, okay. Yeah. I, I, hmm, I thought about it a lot, and I... Mm, it's an arresting set of images, and I'm cool with that. Yeah, I want to talk about it more, though, so yeah, I'm excited. We'll, we'll come back into it. But th- anyway, so th- that's all working, but production design is great. I love the costumes. I love the costumes. I love the costumes. Did I mention how much I love the costumes? Because they are amazing, all of them. Especially, oh, I can't say especially, but I was very arrested by the very, very long purple cape uh, and the way that it was rigged uh, there in the dream world. That was something You're to You're talking about behold. the cape when he comes out of the water yeah it's so no, well that's a different one no i'm talking about the cape when he's sitting on the throne oh you know, that when, one's so good too when, when uh, bodybuilder lady brings him in yeah oh, the capes uh all the capes yeah the the image of him coming out of that pool i remember seeing that in all the trailers and thinking yeah and like tin this looks like the coolest fucking movie ever and yeah. i'm glad i did not see it till i was a grown because this is definitely the kind of movie i might have accidentally seen way too young yeah uh, and i'm glad i did not because that would have been a lot to handle uh, lastly, I would just say, in terms of uh, camera choices, I think I really, really enjoy uh, what's going on sometimes in the dream world, insofar as he does suffer from schizophrenia, and so there are certain breaks, but they sort of connect, and the way that the cameras use with the sort of like stuttering camera, uh, either in movement or in frame capture, and I'm not sure if they're speeding it up or slowing it down, or if they're simply just cutting out a bunch of frames while they're making a camera move. So uh, the Jacob Ladders, Jacob's yeah, Ladder. Yeah, well, yeah, whatever there is that they're doing, I really, really like that i will say i I do have one other thing to say howard shore writes some good music i really really love uh the sort of uh south asian uh indian kind of music Mm -hmm. that's coming out at the first part and last parts of the film the guy's prolific man yeah and i could have stood for a lot more of that i I, it really reminded me of some of peter gabriel's work on uh, last temptation of christ and so uh then the the stuff that i really liked about it i liked about this as well so uh generally i liked it I, i this is the thing for me, since I like movies about how they look more than the, the way in which they attempt to tell stories, I'm more okay with this. But if I were more of a story guy, I think I would be pretty down on this one, which probably explains its lack of success. I, I think that's totally fair. I, I think you either get on this movie's wavelength or you don't. But if you can get on this movie's wavelength, I think you're going to have a good time. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. So there you go, dear listener. Our biases are generally pro. We kind of like this. It's fun. And so we had a good time with it. We also want to have a good time talking about it, but not just with ourselves. We want to talk with you about it via those magical means we know as social media. Dalton. Yes, Dalton. Say words, please. Oh, well, uh, that... all right, I'm not going to be silly about it. I, we're on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash GTM. Uh, you can go there and do that. We're, we're, we're trying to be better about keeping that up to date. Um, but uh, that's out of my hands. Um, we're on Twitter at good underscore trash where we do lots of stuff. Um, and, again, those are both for all things good trash. Uh, right now, obviously, um, as as you are aware, if you're a frequenter of this content, um, you know that the Good Trash Genre Cast is really the only thing we're doing right now. However, for the next couple of weeks, you will also get Caleb Masters' cast Beyond the Wall, uh, in which him and uh, Daniel Stoll and Austin Lucari go week to week through the currently airing episode of Game of Thrones and, and do a recap, analysis, breakdown kind of thing of the episode that they watched. I'm on it sometimes. I don't know if I'm going to make it this season. Uh, we haven't really talked about that, but um, lots of lots of uh, familiar voices do pop up on that show from time to time if you like a lot of good trash media stuff. So we've got both of those going on right now. Uh, and anything you want to engage with us, you can do that on Twitter, at good underscore trash. You have thoughts on this show, on Cast Beyond the Wall, on stuff in our back catalog, like uh, The People's History of Film or The Film Syllabus or The Cast Who Knew Too Much, any of those uh, the shows that aren't airing right now. 
um, hit us up at good underscore trash. Obviously, uh, last but certainly not least, it would mean the world to us if you would rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, wherever you you get your ear your your ear noise from. Thank you very much. Hey guys, guess what? What's that, bud? It's time to play the game. Time to play the game. Time to play the game! <laughs> and we're back, dear listener, with the game that everybody plays and yet no one ever wins. We're playing the movie game this week here at the Good Trash Genre Cast. And this week's 200 plus episodes, and that's the first time we got, got to that? <laughs> Son of a bitch. That's so good. So nobody's been keeping score this whole time. <laughs> That's so good. Nobody wins. No, no one wins. But that's a perfect <laughs> way to describe it. It's the game where everybody it's plays. It's like whose line? And, yeah. And nobody wins. Yeah. Because the points don't the points matter. Are made, the points are made up. Uh, uh, the games are made up and the points don't matter, just like capitalism. Um, <laughs> hi, welcome. Yeah, Dustin. Wow. Good job, buddy. So this week's game is our favorite cinematic technology. Oh, that's right. Favorite cinematic technology brought to you by Vassell. Vassell. Don't you want to go poking around a deviant sex killer's mind? No. No, me neither. So this is it, it. You could hardly... <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, you could hardly call this uh, a fun movie tech. So it's, it's not... The tech is not always going to be fun. It's just going to be... Sometimes it's great to watch movies about it, right? Yeah. And that's the great thing about sci-fi is to take this wonderful idea and then just completely mess it up. Yeah, uh, completely yeah. mess it up, and of course, make it go awry. Yeah. I mean that 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 is a trope, and that's that's, yeah. that's all the way back to Frankenstein, right? We've talked about that before. A what the, the Frank? What's Frankenstein? Frankenstein is a book. <laughs> what's it's what's an epistolary book? novel? What's what's books, precious? <laughs> <laughs> well, there was a movie in the thirties. Yeah, no, I've seen it. It's, it's good. It's good. <laughs> what's the thirties? <30s? laughs> oh, oh man, we're, we're we're feeling our own. All right, today, well, I'm listening. jumping in. I'm going to start us off. I'm going to stop this madness. Um, I want to talk about the prequel to Inception, and that is Event Horizon. Uh, I, I'm not Inception, Interstellar. Because um, here's the thing. I hate – if you listen to the show, you know I don't like Event Horizon. You know that I don't. But the idea that we've figured out FTL travel and the way we're going to do faster than light is punching holes in space and going through wormholes, much like they do in Interstellar. Uh, but what if those fucking black holes that you're going through take you through hell? <laughs> It's so cool. It's such a cool idea for a movie. And I hate that that movie's not better. I should have took a left at Albuquerque. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's such a cool idea, though, right? Like, Oh, it is. Yeah. yeah. Hey, we figured out faster than light travel. Awesome. What's the catch? Well, the catch is you have to go through hell to get to the other side of space. Uh, because when you, you completely strip away time and space uh, and all meaning uh, and swap matter and, yeah, things get a little screwy, huh? So yeah, that's my first pick. Uh, what what a good load of fun that film could have been. Uh, my first choice uh, is going to be the best choice of them all, uh, and that is what if you had the capability to clone creatures from millions of years ago, and then build a theme park around them, <laughs> where the Pirates of the Caribbean sometimes eat yes. tourists. Yes, Jurassic Park, I think, has a great idea. And Michael Crichton was great about this in all of his literature. Uh, but ta- and, and the great thing about Crichton is he foresaw where technology was headed or science was headed. Mm-hmm. And then he gave us these you know, parables about this is where it's going to really go wrong if we try it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, with Jurassic Park, we're already into cloning. We're talking about that in the 80s, 90s. We're starting to do it with sheep. Yep. Uh, but Jurassic Park is a great kind of know warning about you know not going too far out of your control to uh try to change things and i i think it's just a lot of fun i think it's uh you know it's well handled and uh it works well, I, I, I think jurassic park uh often gets a bad rap for being a movie that's like mm, science bad i don't think so i think and we've talked about this on the show before it's just been years uh but briefly before we move on, I think what's so great about Jurassic Park is it reminds you, like, hey, remember all the other times we've induced non-native species to uh, to territory that they weren't actually from? They tend to run amok. 
and you know yeah. fuck up the food chain and the ecology of wherever they get introduced to. Yeah. So like that that uh, engaging with like the the ecology of colonialism is really interesting. Um, and I don't think uh, old JP gets enough credit for it. No, I, I agree with that entirely. Uh, my first pick is uh, from uh, Shane Carruth's film Primer, the Time Machine. Yeah, yeah. Therein, uh, the reason why I love this particular piece of technology is it's accidental. They're trying to create a teleportation device or at least a matter lightning device so that as they lighten said matter, it can be hauled with less force, mm-hmm. right? It's sort of increasing efficiency in travel. And uh, through that, they're working closer to something more along the lines of what we would consider teleportation. And uh, while they're doing that, they accidentally invent a time machine. <laughs> And in so doing, they begin to take trips back and forth the time without allowing there to be multiple timelines. And thus, they have to confuse and backwalk along themselves as they do this. And the madness and really just sort of insanity that ensues trying to keep all of these timelines straight is really, really fascinating. It's one of my favorite explorations of time travel anyway. But that particular machine in which you have to go in, go to sleep, and you have to sleep for the period of time in which you're traveling backwards all of that sort of weird kind of you know rules to the machine Mm -hmm. is just a ton of fun and something i really really enjoyed uh this next one's a two-parter uh i want to thank uh these are not texts that uh, the films revolve around actually they're just incidental tech uh but i want to thank 2001 a space odyssey and minority report for inventing touch screens and tablets um well done uh 2001 really invented tablets in the 60s uh and then they invented uh touchscreens and again i think spielberg being a collaborator and fan of kubrick took some of the technology he theorized and and that clark theorized in in that film and him and his production designers said uh, all right what's what's the next thing in tech probably touchscreens right um and they just did that um and the way in which we use touchscreens is pretty fucking bullseye uh depicted in that film that you know was about 10 years ahead of the tech uh, and that's always fun when that happens, when a movie is uh, ahead of, like, some real-world technology. Um, that's always really fun. So Absolutely. I want to give, give some love to those two. I appreciate that. Mr. Arthur Gordon, you have any other selections? Uh, I, I think since you've brought up time travel, I don't want to mention the DeLorean, but I, I do want to bring up uh, another teleporter uh, that you reference, and that is the telepods from The Fly that lead to all sorts of utter chaos didn't we and talk monstrosity. About, we talked about Brundlefly last week, too, didn't uh, we? A couple weeks ago, okay. we talked about Brundlefly, yeah. Good old Brundlefly. We're going to do that movie one of these days. Someday. Someday. Yeah, but it's, it is a very cool... It, it's, it's a fully functioning teleporter. I mean, yeah. it works. You know, it resequences your matter and puts it all back together. It just it resequences all the matter. Yeah, yeah. Just, it needs Don't put a, sugar in the recipe. It requires a perfectly sterile environment. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I guess... What would happen if Jeff Goldblum had been wearing his clothes? Does he get a naked... Yeah, he gets in naked. Oh, yeah, then he'd have like, like, uh, like a sp- he'd have a spleen made out of cotton. <laughs> yeah, that, that doesn't sound like that's what spleens are supposed to be made out of. Mm, man. It's not. I no. don't think I don't think it'd no. work very well. No. <laughs> do, you, do you want your peep to be made out of a tube sock? <laughs> I don't think so. No. Uh, okay, I have two other picks. Um, so here's the next one. Um, I want to talk about Star Trek for a second. Uh huh. Um, my fate. I mean, obviously, teleporters we've already mentioned are cool. Um, obviously. Uh, with what's happening right now in virtual reality and what, what's going on with the holodeck is very cool. But that's not the tech I want. The tech, holodeck. The, 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 the tech I want is the food replicator. Yeah, no, it's definitely not. Yeah. The food replicator is the coolest thing ever. That is the only thing in the world yes. I want. Yeah, that, that is the shit. Yeah, that is just the absolute coolest device. Best idea ever. Now, do we know what the replicator makes the food from? It's, it's, it's a molecule machine. Is it 3D printing? It's it basically 3D printing and gotcha. putting together the molecules. Okay. So, yeah. And then it just, you know, it but also... where's like, the matter for those molecules? I don't know where that goes I, I need to know more. There's a lot of woo-woo for that science. Yeah, I, mean. I want to know more, though. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, here's a question. Does everybody on that ship use the, the holodeck to jerk off? I assume so. I mean, except data. Except, well, yeah, obviously. <laughs> well, he's fully functional, I hear. That's, wait, is he? Is that a thing? Oh, yeah, yeah. That comes yeah. up on the show, He right? sleeps yeah. with Tasha Yar in like I the think, third episode. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck, yeah, man. That's awesome. It only took three episodes. Yeah, yeah. That, that, three and, episodes. And Android is banging. I'm, three episodes. <laughs> the Thanks, next generation ran <laughs> yeah. before, before Data put the dick down. Mm. That's ridiculous. <laughs> three episodes. Insert drive here. That is, <laughs> oh, no. that is so Eject gross. before removing. Oh, my God. Can I show you my hyperdrive? Oh, Jesus. 
Uh, wow. Yeah. Three episodes. Yeah. That's yeah. incredible. <laughs> well, this this is not going to get you better than that. Let's move on to to something more serious, shall we? Did you have one more pick? I had one more pick, man. I don't care. It's not going to get better than that. We're <laughs> well, calling it. Okay, there you go. I, I, I'm then I'll save it for later. It's fine. It, it, all right, it, I want to hear it. Well, I, I was just going to name the one thing that fuels all of our fantasies and childhoods. That the holodeck, sex deviants, <laughs> the lightsaber. The holodeck. Um, <laughs> I lose. Yeah, you did. Uh, although, good good point on the lightsaber. Though no one wins, I still lose. That's very sad. And that is how the game is played. Oh, let's not have that be a continuing thing. No, <laughs> no. As soon as I did it, I was like, this isn't going to become a bit. This, no. is this is over. This is not a recurring segment. All right, let's get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for And that business is, as always, analysis. Dear listener, I'm very, very excited to hear what my co-hosts have to say. We've got a lot going on, and uh, I am interested to hear more, and we did sort of begin to hint towards this idea of discussing a little bit more about Vince Vaughn's character. So um, I don't know who wants to lead off. Well, I, I, I'll go ahead and jump off real quick. So before we get to the, the, the plot twist, um, I, or I guess the, the twist in the action, I guess we'll get to the twist in the character. Um, so we learned that Vince Vaughn, before he worked for the FBI, worked in a DA's office um, and was prosecutor and made him real sad when uh, somebody got, got, got away with uh, molesting a girl and then ended up murdering her. Um, and in the process of revealing this information, Vince Vaughn also reveals that he might have had a sexually abusive childhood. Um, Definitely heavily, heavily implied. Yeah. Um, so we then go to... Uh, Jennifer Lopez going back into Vincent D's mind. I'm going to say call him Vincent D because I have a real hard time with his last name. D'Onofrio. I know. I always screw it up. I always want to add extra ends in there. Yeah. So she goes into D'Onofrio's brain. There we go. Um, and she gets lost, and Vince Vaughn jumps in to go after her. Um, and in the process, both Jennifer Lopez and Vincent D try to uh, talk to him about his trauma, and he is not hearing it. I am here for one thing. It is to get you out of here. Um, so that was, and he does succeed in getting J-Lo out of there and also figuring out uh, where um, Vincent's final, Carl uh, Rudolph Starger, uh, where, sure. where Carl's final victim is. So let's go ahead and let's let's talk about that, well, shall we? What it tries to do is tries to strike a balance between two very, very important ideas. The first of which being that, any person who hurts people was probably hurt as a person mm -hmm. and that there is a definite need for some sympathy for the devil in, in that sort of sense. And so that's, that's the first half of the tension. But the other half that – Which uh, is one of my favorite parts because yeah. it doesn't seem like uh, Vince Vaughn is giving uh, – given really the focus of the film in those scenes. And you're like, oh, gross. I don't think I like where this movie's going because it's a little too – like, don't get me wrong. Yeah, the character of Carl is a – Bad, 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 bad man. Yeah. But there is a, a, a little boy who is real hurt inside of there, and I think you can't forget about that. And I think at first it seems like Vince Vaughn's telling the audience, you have to forget about that. And then it cuts back to J-Lo and gives her the focus again. And I think this is just a really good way that this two-shot is done, is it stays on him for so much of the dialogue, and then it goes back to her, and she goes, why do you think that? Mm. Like, what, 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 what makes you so sure? Um, and I, I don't know. I like the way that's played. I think what you don't like is what happens next. Yeah, what, yeah. I don't like what happens next, but I, I like just fine the idea that Vince Vaughn says I also, or sort of suggests I also was abused, and I just made choices. And yeah, there, there, there's, there's still, everybody still has a choice. Yeah, you're not mechanistically programmed by that sort of trauma to necessarily follow a particular kind of path. And I, th I think that's one of the things that's so fascinating, especially if you follow true crime or you know yeah. read into it or study it, and, and to hear the stories of all the you know Dahmer, Gacy, Bundy, whoever it is. Is there a thing called a murder triad, Arthur? <clears throat> it's so and so's triad, and we always forget who it's because Arthur and I actually were talking about this not that long ago. Um, it's so and so's triad, and it's um, it's not actually the it's not for murder. It's signs of sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Now yeah. the. the and they the two do often go hand in hand because most serial killers experience some sort of physical or sexual trauma as children. Yeah. Um, but the, the triad really does uh, 
typically, in my understanding, refer more to just the likelihood of these three things represent a likelihood of sexual abuse. And I believe it's um, hurting animals, bedwetting, and uh, fire. Um, wait, shit, no, no, the hurting animals is oh no, it's 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 bedwetting, it's bedwetting, head trauma, head trauma. Shit, no, damn it. Oh, it's, and abuse. It's abuse. I no, because the triad, I'm going to look this up later uh, okay. as we're talking, and we'll we'll, uh, we'll give a more accurate definition. But, Dustin, what, why were you asking? Well, I was, Arthur was just talking about the sort of inevitability of it. And I was, gotcha. I was like, that's, that was, that's a thing I knew it sort of existed, and I wanted a little clarification yeah. on. But I, I think it's always interesting because there, there is this thing to, when you study these these figures, yes, what they've done is morally reprehensible, but... It is in those choices that they've made, and and it's also were those were the pieces there to help allow them to make the right choices or not as well, right? And so there are so many other factors to think in. But when you hear some of these stories, uh, you know, preceding the spree or the you know the pattern or whatever, you know, when the murdering begins, there is a sympathy there for these these people where you feel bad for the, the childhood they. They, they had where they were abused or they were uh, subjected to, you know, torture or they saw, you know, somebody murdered. You know, I think uh, – I can't remember. It's um, – I think it's the Night Stalker. I can't think of his real name. Richard, uh, Richard Ramirez. 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 I think uh, he saw, like, his uncle kill somebody in front of him. Yeah. And yeah. so there are all those types of things. And you, you feel for these people, and then you get to the other side of the coin. And it's, I think, you know, trying to – I think Ramirez, Ramirez is a really good one to talk about because – of how traumatic his childhood was and just how fucking vile his crimes were. Yeah. Just, like, how obsessed with chaos he was. Because you get guys like uh, Dahmer, who are what's called a process killer, or a product killer. Uh, they really are less interested in the killing somebody than having a dead body. Uh, but then you have Ramirez, who is obsessed with the act of doing the crime. Yeah. Uh, and of desiccating a body and showing off a desiccated body. Um, whew. Icky. Um, but it, it, I think you're right. I think Ramirez is, makes for an interesting one for that reason, to really show both sides of the coin. You meant desecrating a body. I, I, I've heard desiccating, too. Desiccate is to dry out. Really? Okay, desecrating. <laughs> I, I've heard desiccating. Well, I'm a fucking idiot. He mummified heard the body. Ways. He made mummies. Uh, by the way, we were talking about the McDonald triad, which is uh, a triad, a set of three it's, behavioral characteristics that Mac has been suggested. Stop chicken. it. Okay. If all three or any combination of two are present... To be predicted or associated with later violent tendencies, particularly with relation to serial offenses. So it is not about uh, child abuse. Uh, I feel like that's a thing, too. Um, and I'm going to look that up later. Uh, but this triad is uh, the cruelty to animals, obsession with fire setting, and persistent bedwetting past a certain age. There you go. So there you go. But, yeah, I mean, so it does raise that important issue. These are human beings that somehow were broken in the process and it can be because of a chemical issue or because of a, uh, a physical illness i mean there's a there's an actual virus at play here uh for uh carl um it's a d'onofrio's character so there's that that's going causing on. the coma that's yeah. causing the coma that's also causing the schizophrenia that's right and so it, it's, it's being brought on by that schizophrenia also brought on by abuse yada 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 there's a whole lot of stuff going on there so it, there it is a fictional disease by the way okay oh, yeah, i'm sure it is yeah, yeah just in case you're wondering it completely sounded so yeah. it sounded very fake but i wanted to look up, yeah, good, good, good call on the research there, sir. Uh, but it does those things in which you say, okay, there are there are things outside their control, there are things within their control, as Arthur was pointing out, and uh, it does shine some light on what we can do to intervene mm-hmm. in those moments that there are uh, that is not simply. We don't simply want to go on Vince Vaughn's side and say you just should have chose better despite your suffering, is that you yeah. had opportunities and helpful and healthy uh, relationships or other people in your life that sort of were there to help you out. And they were able to, as Jennifer Lopez discusses when she's talking about the idea of moving outside the mind of the patient into uh, her mind as therapist, that by taking a child out of its environment and using the foster program, you're able to delve down deeper, you're able to correct some bad behaviors, et cetera, so on and so forth, that those things are possible, but they're not not always readily available. Yeah. Well, and I think what that speaks to, not only in you know taking somebody out of an abused environment, but it's also showing somebody who's not used to empathy, empathy, mm-hmm. saying, "Hey, that gross part of you that you think no one sees, I see it, and I feel that way too. Sometimes um, you're just doing a bad thing." And I think uh, Lopez's character really has this fascinating combo to me of 
understanding the place for empathy and also saying, well, no, you can't trust this guy and you can't, this guy can't be around people, but that doesn't mean you have to treat him like an animal. Um, and I think that's, I know it's a, it's a really nuanced opinion of a, of a big budget movie to have, you know, I mean, especially big budget films about serial killers are often, um, Hey, guess what? Sometimes we have boogeymen, um, and we get to be afraid of people and dehumanize them and have something that, uh, to represent and codify all evil that frightens us. And unfortunately, uh, the world is much more complicated than that a lot of the time. Uh, most of the time, all of the time, take your pick. Um, but I, I really like uh, how that character is written in so much as that she does seem to have an understanding of that. Is I'm not saying you can trust Carl, and I'm not saying Carl can be fixed. I'm saying the least we can do is not treat him like an animal. Right. And that I'm down with. Now, what I am not down with concerning Vince Vaughn's character. And yes. I do want to talk about this with you guys. And this is this is less analysis and this is just more plotting kind of stuff, okay. like creative criticism. But the idea that they would send Vince Vaughn in as backup to get J Lo out. No. No, there's this, no way. N- no. No, there's yeah. no way. No. It's complete nonsense. Yeah. I like everything that happens there. I like uh that it's kind of sexy. Um I like that then it gets it takes a real fucking turn. Uh, I like how unpleasant that entire sequence is. I, I love that it's all three of those actors interacting with each other. But yeah, the sequence of events that gets him in her in into Carl's mind, yeah, it's it's real stupid. Yeah, it it feels so kind of like a token moment in the film. It's so Hollywood, yeah. yeah. It feels like n- no, there's no way. Yeah, this is science. Yeah, you can't just introduce this new person. Yeah, it does. It, it and I think that's my whole thing. I feel like. That whole FBI thing is so tacked on for this story. And I think if you remove that element and you – I mean you keep D- Vincent D. in as the uh, you know kind of the subconscious boogeyman of Edward the Child who she interacts with at the beginning. I think it's an interesting You idea. work it that way and you still have this trauma. You still have the Chamber of Horror stuff. You know, maybe we make a movie about a traumatized child and, um, you know, we're, we're the, the instead of an active serial killer – you're realizing this child has, you know, so, uh, uh, sociopathic or psychopathic or antisocial personality disorder tend- tendencies towards the these very uh, these precursors for later violent behavior. Um, you know, may- maybe uh, we take this movie and squish it with like something like a bad seed, yeah, uh, and we try to do something a little bit different. I, I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting idea, and I wonder if the movie would have been better for it, Arthur. We need to talk about Edward. We I, I, we really do need to talk about the kid. Yeah, what about him? Well, here's the thing. What happens to him? Yeah, I know. Nothing. Who knows? Yeah. That is not okay. The movie just kind of forgets about him. This kid is suffering this terrible, terrible trauma. It does kind of... I think the end of the movie does seem to suggest that he comes out of his coma. Maybe, but here, but again, here's the real problem. This is this this is what puts my panties in a bunch. All right, yeah. it is is that we've got this character, this kid who suffered this trauma, and they put it together this very experimental kind of you know uh, uh-huh. yeah. form of therapy yeah. and treatment, and they're working really hard. It's not getting immediate results, mm-hmm. and the, you know it may not get funded because you know daddy daddy uh, money bags yeah. uh, doesn't necessarily want to fund it. But when the FBI shows up and it, then it has a punitive, uh, judicial, uh, legal system yeah. kind of thing that works for it. Yeah. That becomes the entirety of the story. Yeah. And the helping of a child who's suffering becomes nothing but a sidelight. And now I want to throw things. But but they're also trying to save a person who is in immediate physical danger. Okay, and that's fair. And I mean, that there, there is definitely a, a sense and I, of peril. And I think the, the, the movie does well to introduce that element. That element yeah. that does potentially feel a little bit like it's pulling a little too much from Silence of the Lambs. I think it's good to introduce that element because it makes putting Edward on the back burner more justifiable, that there is immediate physical peril. Like somebody will die if we do not do this right now. Yeah, but I feel An the stakes are higher for Edward, die. though. Because of the way, I mean, this, the rest of this narrative is constructed, it feels like we spend 10 minutes with Edward and family, maybe, but Tops, I feel like yeah, there's man. more character depth and emotion and stakes at play right there in those 10 minutes than anything that comes after. I mean, the dream world's great, and there's some great moments, yeah. and I like the way it's all constructed, but I, I just don't care about Vaughn, and I don't care about Carl, and I I. It's a it's a great excuse to play in a horror setting. I think that's totally fair. Yeah, I I, I can totally see that. And so I I, I kind of agree with Dustin. I, I just don't. If you want to introduce the technology in a prelude, there are so many other ways to do it without setting up 
a, a separate narrative that never really resolves except as a bookend with no real you know depth or, or uh, compelling finalization of the story there. And I, I think that certainly is probably the uh, the weakest point of this film, and I think it, it, it's part of what's made this analysis a little harder to grasp, grasp at be, because it is an entire plot thread that just gets completely and utterly dropped about 15 minutes into the film, uh, and then we get like some very minor touching on. Uh, at the end, and then it's over. And yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. It it, it introduces a, a purely sympathetic character, and then expects you to forget about him. Yeah. And uh, and it does kind of lead you to wonder: is there a director's cut, or an alt? You know, what's left on the recording room floor? You know, what was the? You know, is, is there a grander vision yeah, before the studio the, gets involved? The script that couldn't uh, they couldn't afford to film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I imagine this was an expensive movie to make. It could no matter what its budget was, I'm sure it was pushing every single nickel and dime oh, I, out of that. I bet you. I feel like this movie shows every penny. I I know what didn't have a huge budget. I remember looking it up and I've already forgotten. I feel like it was somewhere in the 35 to 45 million range, man. Every nickels on the screen. Ooh, this movie looks good. Yeah, it looks good. Um, well, and as we're talking about the look, I think now would be a good time to segue into some of the, the visual things you were yeah, talking about. Yeah, the aesthetics of it. I mean, there, there's a whole lot of stuff going on that I, I would want to talk about. I mean, first of all, just the use of religious uh, symbolism and iconography uh, throughout the film. And we do have some real-world stuff that goes on with this as well. So we do see uh, some uh, Indian Buddhist, not Buddhist, excuse me, Hindu uh, iconography inside of J-Lo's home. Mm-hmm. And so Catherine is her character's mm-hmm. name, if yes, I recall. correct. And so we, we see some of those things in her home. But also, it, it's, it's always funny to me that when we start getting really, really pushing the envelope in terms of technology, in terms of the mind, in terms of exploration of the universe, that the only way that we can begin to describe that is in terms of the spiritual, that we have to go back into some of those, you know, uh, dusty, older uh, modes of thinking. And that does introduce, you know, uh, something that is potentially problematic is going back to... um, uh, the East uh, and their art and philosophy and religion to uh, exemplify those those higher states of consciousness and those higher states of uh, enlightenment and awakening. And yes, that does really hinge upon that um, two of the dominant faiths in that part of the world, or not even faiths, uh, spiritual systems in that part of the world, do talk a lot about uh, inner inner light and inner enlightenment more than uh, Western religion does. Um, but there is a potentially problematic thing where uh, a lot of uh, Western media is um, snatching that up to, to use it. Um, it's, it's dicey. Yeah, well, the Western thing about it is that you plug in to get it done. Yeah. Right. I mean, the way in which you are able to encounter the self and whatever the higher plane may happen to be in any of those disciplines, it takes some work and some years in order for that to happen. But really, we've got a cocktail. We'll just shoot you up real quick, and then we'll wire you into this sort of weird thing that's also armored with, like, the leftovers from Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yeah. And uh, yeah. which is really kind of strange. Yeah, I, I, but, yeah, I mean, you speak to something there about uh, the, that, that immediacy, right? Yeah. The desire for immediacy. Um, but I, I think you're right that those introducing those visuals early is helpful, uh, and then continuing to introduce that kind of that iconography throughout the film uh carl's mind uh really seems super influenced by weirdly both like elizabethan england um renaissance italy and then like um you know pre um greek uh egyptian art right with Um, a healthy dose of 20 surrealism yeah um yeah and then a little little taste of that uh that uh that that good weird shit from uh, geiger um it's but it's a really like specific aesthetic that's taking from a lot of sometimes not totally related fields and i find it interesting and dustin you know a lot more about this than either arthur or i um are are there any specific uh images because again a lot of uh, Carl's mindscapes are taken from real paintings and stuff. So is there anything in particular that stood out to you other than, you know, you mentioned Catherine's um, uh, Hindu art in her home. Uh, is there any other, like, specific art or imagery in this film that you're like, ooh, I, I wonder that if that's, that's why they did this? The particular doll designs that we see in uh, the basement mm-hmm. of Carl's home and then also the uh, the life-sized, you know, uh, realized dolls that are inside of his mind are uh, are leaning on a couple things that are uh, pretty popular in art and also uh, with a cinematic connection insofar as the Quay brothers are, are drinking deeply from the same kinds of wells. And so you'll see the same thing. And there is a bit of that stop-motion usage in the... Uh, in the uh, 
cinematography as well as well that sort of calls to mind the quays. Uh, so there, I was thinking really, um, you know, Street of Crocodiles and uh, some of those short films uh, by the quays that do that. But also the way in which these uh, dolls are unmade, the, the, the way mm. in which they are mutated and warped uh, really calls to a nineteen. 40s, 50s uh, artist called Hans Belmer and uh, his uh, his puppets uh, series, which I think really connects very well to what's going on in there. And what this film does, that I think it does very very well, and we were talking about this off mic, is that uh, a lot of times horror movies love to do this kind of imagery. This just kind of just bat crap crazy. Let's just, I mean, what is the most disturbing thing you can describe? You know, I'm going to get. The doll, and then I'm going to cut out its stomach, and I'm going to insert like bird innards, and then I'm going to put a rat's head on top of it. That kind of thinking that happens, and I'm going to make it life size, and it's going to be walking around. Of course, it can't exist in the real world at all, but it'll happen sometimes in these sort of uh, chambers of horrors in horror films, and it always takes me out. This film succeeds in that it's able to drink so deeply from that directly surrealist Belmer uh, Quay Brothers kind of well of imagery, but it explains it away because we're living inside the head Mm -hmm. of a schizophrenic um, serial killer like Carl. And so that's a lot of fun. That's 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 really cool, and I and I really like that because other times it just sort of like we we did Lords of Salem together, yeah. Um, and uh, we, I mean, I, I like that movie a lot. But there is this mo- moment where yeah. the movie loses its mind, right? And it's, it's great. Yeah, it's totally great. And I think it's probably in Sherry Moon's head what's going on yeah. there. Yeah, but it doesn't really fit. We have to ask when you see those moments in a film. It's usually someone's hallucinating. Or they're drugged up or something. And so we have to kind of question your narrative. But here it has that logical sense and kind of base that makes it work. It makes it stronger. so you don't have to question your narrative. Yeah. It, yeah. it, allows, it, it allows a really intense uh, digression from you know, traditional storytelling mechanics. Um, it really allows that insertion of sequences of this f- film that are entirely surrealist. Um, and then allows it to work inside of a conventional narrative. Which I think is really just a smart way to make a movie. Um, is, hey, I want to do some real wacky, surreal shit, and I want to get a mainstream audience to see it. Here's a really easy way to slot that into a conventional narrative. And I I think it's to the film's benefit. Um, We were talking a little bit, Dustin. You you were starting to talk about the fact that uh, J-Lo pictures herself as a Virgin Mary. Yeah, yeah, she's Um, definitely got a St. Guadalupe kind of vibe going on. Yeah, oh, 100%. Well, she even looks at a a painting... uh, uh, of uh, this is the Virgin of Guadalupe, and uh, before like taking Carl into her mind. So what? It, <laughs> number one, uh, is it okay to have a Latina actress dressed up as the Virgin Mary in a dream sequence? Number two, is it okay to have her character imagining herself as the Virgin Mary? Number three, is it gross? Number four, um, does it make sense? Number five, there's a lot to talk about. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I'm, obviously, we're not the, the people to answer these questions. I just want to make sure it's clear that I think they're worth asking. I think for me, it it, it kind of felt too on the nose, and it kind yeah. of took me out in yeah. that moment. Um, it felt way too schmaltzy it, in well, a way. And whether it's problematic or not, yeah. your brain has to go, wait, wait a second. Is that gross? And it immediately takes you out of yeah. that moment. So even if it's not gross, your brain had to stop and go, did we do a weird thing? Yeah. I think... I think it's definitely better for a Latina to be doing it than anybody else. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Biggie on the eye chart there. Let's yeah. just hit that one real quick. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. So that that's, oh, could have been worse. Yeah. yeah that's, so that could have been worse. But if we are to say that Carl's delusions are what cause him to fancy himself as the pagan witch king of yeah, Agmar. Or, or, or some or sort of – yeah, or is. like some Xerxes-esque god king. Yeah. Right. If that's, if that's what we're saying about him and that's what's being revealed there, then narratively, the way in which Catherine views herself, that, that does – it demonstrates things that are not connected into a real world story at all. I don't see any sort of you know Catholic practice or anything like that as part of her life, and it also begins to raise just a whole slew of questions that are not even going to be begin to be touched upon in that kind of story. Now, here is where I will say that I think it makes sense uh, because of Carl's religion, and Carl has talked about uh, having a background in a Christian faith. Um, sort of an Appalachian sort of Pentecostalism, it looks yeah. like. Yeah. So I think it is that intention. I think what she intentionally does is take an image, an iconography he's going to be vaguely familiar with, but 
most certainly would not have been spoiled for him. And it's an image that represents, um, you know, a, a kind, uh, feminine, loving presence, right? Uh, and it's something that he's been taught that doesn't exist. Through his abuse, he has been trained to think that um, uh, women are things, and she is reminding him that that is not the case. Well, and, she definitely uses baptism, which is what he's familiar with, in yeah, that yeah. different context. Yeah, so. and I, I think it's an intentional usage of you know Christian iconography because she knows he's familiar with it, um, and she knows it'll probably bring him some peace if she presents it to him in a way that he's probably never seen it. Um, so I think that's really interesting, but I think everything you said is also still valid. Thank you. You're uh, welcome. <laughs> but I just want to present that counterpoint. Yeah, no, no, I think that's that, that's totally fair. It, 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 it is really kind of... It's a hard place to go. And she is definitely functioning, if you were going to use um, uh, another literary reference, Dante. She's definitely doing a Beatrice kind of thing there. She oh, is, for sure. She is the guide through the bowels and the depths and uh, the muse. And so she's definitely doing these things for Carl, also for Edward. Uh, again, much more interested in seeing more Edward than I was seeing uh, Carl. But so that also makes some sense but then again just all kinds of weirdness begins to come into this is like well i mean you know it does why 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 does she have to be virginal to be heroic in the sense yeah and that's a problem yeah it's a little gross because uh when she's fully taken over by carl in his brain is when she's mad sexy she's mad sexy then yeah yeah so it, it definitely is weird it also you know this uh woman's whole goal in life is taking care of little boys and then the men they grow up to be um and doesn't seem we don't get a sense of her inner life outside of taking care of edward and then carl so i think there's something going on there that i i, I that there, there's a disservice going on to her character there i think uh in regards to the edward story mm-hmm. i, I, I want to bring up this point from imdb oh thank you uh, that'll kind of maybe put some context in there uh, the last scene of the film in the desert was originally an earlier scene in the film depicting another one of Catherine's therapy sessions with Edward. Uh, later, Singh decided the film needed closure on his story, Edward. Uh, he, had, he added digital snow and cherry blossoms added in to make it look like it was part of Catherine's world. Uh, to make it seem like with it working to take Carl into her mind, she went ahead and took Edward yeah. into her mind, too. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, I guess um, either we're dumb or it wasn't clear enough. No, I mean, I understood it was Edward, but it, it just I didn't realize shoehorned. Were, I didn't realize they were in her mind at it, all. Oh, uh, okay. It didn't occur to me. I, 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 I think I thought that they were in her mind because yeah. she'd been successful with Carl, but I yeah. also thought that she wasn't done yet, and we're just going to leave this hanging. Yeah, it doesn't feel complete. So, But at, at the very least, there was an attempt to address that. Yeah. Uh, it didn't work out, but at the very least, he, he was aware um, about that structural problem with his story. So, yeah. I mean, you know. At least, and that I think goes to show that there is a lot of thought and care being taken in this film. And I think when a film missteps, it's a lot easier to give it a pass when you can tell that, well, they cared about other things, though. So this must have very clearly just been an accident because they took the time and effort to care about other things that also seem pretty fucking important. Right. Doesn't so, feel like a hack job, that's for sure. Almost certainly. And whatever its missteps are, I think. Uh, the conversation we've had goes to show that, you know, there is a lot going on here in this film, and I, I think it's a very thoughtfully made film. Well, alrighty, guys. Well, if we don't have any further ado at this point. Let's um, render a verdict. Shell for trash, and then your else's or instead's. I'll be thrilled to hear these um, about the film The Cell. I go to you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What do you say? Shell for trash, else or instead? I'm going to go ahead and shelf this. Um, it's kind of hard to find. Um, I also think it's really great. Um, I just, I think it's good. And as, as we, as I said earlier, if you can get on this movie's wavelength, I think you're really going to appreciate it. So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say it's a must watch. If, if anything we have said, like tickled your fancy at all, you need to watch this. Like, I think it's one of those movies, as soon as you hear the premise, you know, whether or not you're going to be into it. Uh, and if that premise alone, you're like, yeah, give me some of that. You're going to have a good time here. Um, I would also recommend Tarsum's, uh, I think it was his direct follow-up to this film. If not, it was just a couple years later, The Fall, starring Oklahoma native Lee Pace. Isn't that fun? Uh, but does a lot of similar things. It's basically a much more pleasant version of the story. Um, it takes place in a war hospital, maybe? I'm really actually struggling to remember because it's been so many years since I've seen it. But uh, there's a lot of fantasy sequences and dream sequences. Um, and it took years to film because there was a bunch of like extensive global location scouting just for like visually striking uh, physical locations that they could go to that would look like they were taking place inside of a fantasy. Um, really great film, uh, as I recall. Again, it's probably been 
God, almost eight years since I've seen it. Um, but I really do like the film quite a bit, and I would strongly recommend you check it out again. That is the fall. Um, I would also recommend, even though it comes up all the time in the show, Brian Fuller's Hannibal, uh, the TV series that ran for three years on NBC, because I think Fuller and Tarsum have very similar like sensibilities uh, in terms of art direction. They really like um, kind of genre-fying high art, if that makes sense. Uh, and even in Tarsum's like, lesser stuff, like Immortals, uh, which is a, a Greek set action film uh, with uh, old, old Superman, uh, Sans Mustache, um, even that has got some really like great visual flourishes that are just really splendid. Uh, but anyway, I, I think, but are also super, you know, tropey and genre and kind of actiony. So I think him and Brian Fuller like are playing in the similar pools in that regard. So I definitely recommend that. And, you know, I could probably force a couple of other recommendations, but those are the two I'm going to leave you with. Alrighty, well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton. Sir, what do you say, Arthur? Shuffle trash elsewhere instead. I see, I see you struggling. It is. It's ah oh, man. I want to shelf it, not because it's necessarily a good. I, I think it's an enjoyable movie, but I think from a technical standpoint of uh, aesthetics and set design and art direction and costuming and even editing and a lot of that work um, and the camera work, as Dustin mentioned, I love that kind of stutter work that's happening there. Um, I think sometimes, I mean, Tarsum was a music video director when this, you know, before yeah. he got his break in, in, in film. Um, and sometimes Hollywood has to take a chance and you got to trust, uh, you know, somebody that's not a known quantity. And I, and we're seeing this, you know, guys like music Ryan video Johnson, directors know what's up, man. Hey Finch. Um, but, uh, I think there's a lot here that uh, shows a lot of promise uh, for a filmmaker. And and for that reason, I think it's uh, worth checking out and worth owning. Like Dalton mentioned, it's not easy to come by necessarily. Uh, a little easier than Devil in a Blue Dress, but yeah. nonetheless. But, yeah, I mean, if it hadn't – I don't think it's available for rental anywhere if it, yeah. hadn't, if it hadn't been on HBO. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, would, I would go ahead and shelf it. Uh, I would actually – let me pair with this. Uh, the first one is just a fun, and it's definitely the same wheelhouse, but it's Identity uh, with John Cusack. Uh, and uh, the fun note here is that the, uh, I believe he's the medical examiner or the coroner, I can't remember which, is actually the serial killer in Identity. Oh, that's interesting. Which is just a fun little nod. Um, Identity would come out, I think, in 2004, somewhere in that neighborhood. Well, that's fun. Um, so I would say Identity, and then I would also, I would say Doctor Strange. Uh, because okay. it's Derrickson, yeah. right? Yeah. Derrickson is another of those visual directors who's got a great eye. He's doing some really unique things. And taking it over into blockbuster filmmaking. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that's a, a unique pairing to uh, put side by side. You know what? It's a completely, it's an utterly unique pairing, but yeah. I think they're both drawing from like a lot of like psychedelic imagery and like religious imagery uh, to very interesting effects. So yeah, yeah good good pick. Yeah, that fractal. And that fractal thing. Yeah. And, and then yeah. doing it in mainstream studio filmmaking. Yeah. 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 Good, good, good call. I, I'm also going to say shell for myself. I don't know if I would say that for everybody in the mm-hmm. world, but this is the kind of movie that that, that definitely I've got a wheelhouse. I mean, I, it's yeah. it's in it as the show uh, evolves and as we change and grow as as consumers of art. Uh, I think this film uh, f- and films like this are more quickly becoming this show's wheelhouse. Yeah, uh, because yeah, I, I decidedly for me too. I think Arthur. Um, even your resistance to it, you, you do enjoy that that just attention to detail too. So I yeah. think I think it's decidedly all in our wheelhouses for similar and different reasons. So here is my uh, recommendation for your Cinewaska day. <laughs> um, that's cinematic ayahuasca. Yeah, no, I picked up. What you're doing. <laughs> well, no, I was doing it for the listeners. No, that was funny. That was what I'm saying. <laughs> um, you start off with The Wizard of Oz, and then you watch Alejandro Jodorowsky's um, uh, The Holy Mountain, Th- then uh, you watch this film, and then you finish it all off with Mulholland Drive. Oh, that's what a day. Have oh, a, that's, that's a lot a to handle. And a half. Oh, my God. Have a nice day. That's a day, and You man. don't need anything stronger than some Benadryl or NyQuil. <laughs> no, I mean, I wouldn't recommend anything more than a cup of coffee. Those movies are all... <laughs> Only a half a cup of coffee. Seriously, too God. God. <laughs> that's, that's four movies that are going to put you on your back, man. <laughs> oh, my God. That would be the best day ever, too. It'd be a good day, man. That, uh, a couple of those movies are real long. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the first and the fourth are both very long. 
Uh, so that'd be interesting. So what I understand about uh, those kind of trips, they are also very long. So I think it's par for that particular course. <laughs> so well said. Yeah. So yeah, you know, there, there you go. There's your Cinewaska, um from uh, <laughs> Doctor Cells. <laughs> well, we did it, guys. That's a thing. Uh, we did it. Uh, we talked about the cell. So Dustin forgot to tell you something last week. I did. Um, he was going to announce last week when we were talking Devil in a Blue Dress that we are going to be doing a Denzel Washington marathon coming here up. We haven't decided the layout yet, so we're going to wait another week on that. Uh, but we just wanted you guys to be excited about it. Dustin was going to announce it last week and forgot. So instead, you get one more week of non-Denzel programming, and then we're jumping right back in. But next week, uh, we're going back to a good trash favorite. Um, this will be the one, two, third film from this director that we've discussed on this program. I believe so. It is Paul Verhoeven and his masterpiece that is now this year celebrating its 30th anniversary, uh, RoboCop, starring yeah. Peter Weller. Indeed. Our Lord and Savior, RoboCop, will be on the screens uh, very, very soon. I'm very excited to have that conversation. Go forth and comply evermore. <laughs> oh, man, I guess. Uh, so what you want to do, dear listener, is keep having the conversation because what good trash is all about is not necessarily about the movies that everybody's always talking about all the time. It's about how we can have conversations about any of the movies, and there are all of these lost gems of good trash. So what we want you to do is we want you to keep watching, and we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you for listening to the Good Trash Genre Cast, a presentation of Good Trash Media. This week's uh, outro music is Losing My Religion by R.E.M. Uh, check out the music video uh, as directed by Tarsen Singh, this week's uh, director of note. For more Good Trash content, go to goodtrashmedia.com. I will go to the distance in your eyes.